Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome to our last episode on the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. All right, so we're wearing different clothing because this is a different recording session. Uh, as I mentioned on the intro of our last part four of Limited Atonement, that recording session went longer than I think either one of us anticipated. Yeah, but like an hour and a half. <laughs> not, um, not an hour and a half total, an hour and a half longer yeah. than it was anticipated. So apparently we can talk and talk slowly, I guess. I don't know, a combination of the two. So uh, after around two hours of recording, our equipment failed, but we went with the material we had. So here we are to finish up Limited Atonement. And uh, so we're just working through some of the objections. Last time we ended with uh, the objections of someone, um, half a person, um, if sins are paid for and payment is applied at the cross, how can a person be dead in their sins prior to repentance and faith per Ephesians? We ended with a discussion of uh, man's view of salvation versus God's view of salvation, uh, ours being temporal and uh, God's being from an eternal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next um, quotation, and I, we mentioned it one time uh, many, many episodes ago, uh, but our last uh, <laughs> recording that we, I listened to several podcasts, and it occurred to me afterwards, I attribute all of these statements, I think, to Ken Hemphill, but it was Ken Hemphill with Leighton Flowers. Mm-hmm. So if you go back and listen to that podcast, and you go, oh, it wasn't Ken who said that, it was Leighton. That's a possibility. I may have misattributed. However, they didn't argue about anything. No, they were so, in agreement. Yeah. So, uh-huh. All right, so this was one of the objections raised. I have attributed to Ken from that podcast. He says, I don't think that anyone would think that condemning someone to hell is a good thing. How could anyone think that a loving God would want to do that? This comment really struck me in multiple ways as wrong on many levels. Hell is a good thing. Let's get that out of the way. When evil creatures pay the just penalty for their evil deeds, that's good. It may strike you as odd because we're talking about humans here in, in hell and an eternal judgment. But if you back it up to our own court systems, we think it's good when a criminal justice is served. Mm-hmm. And we would be outraged if a, a policeman or a judge let someone who's guilty go right. um, because we have a sense of what's morally right and what's morally wrong. That gets uh, obscured, I think, some when we're the ones who are the guilty parties. So <laughs> it's not good for me. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Clearly. So how could a good God want to send anyone to hell? Because he is a good God. Right. He is a holy God. He's a just God. And that's what sin requires. So just that opening statement seems wrong. It, it, really, the question should be, how could a good God rescue a sinner like me? And uh, we were talking before about in Romans um, how God is a just justifier. Not only is he a, a justifier of those who aren't good, but he does that in a, in a righteous way due to the, the sacrifice on the cross. So sins are paid for. Yeah, I think this, this strikes me as coming at it backwards, right? Um, when you read in Romans chapter 9, 
as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Um, this statement seems to take the perspective of, gosh, how could God hate Esau? And I think the biblical way to read that, if you start on this side and read all the way up to Romans, you get there and you go, he loved Jacob? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you go read about him in Genesis, he wasn't a lovely guy. He, he, he was a grasper, he was a cheater, he stole the birthright off of Esau, he wasn't the firstborn. I mean, not a good guy, and God said, he's the one that I love. Mm-hmm. And so I think when, when we get an objection like this one, it kind of shows the cards of really how we view biblical theology, and I'm amazed that God can save me. I am so thankful that I'm not going to hell because I deserve it many times over. Right. As does he. Yeah. As do you. Right. Um, and so God could have elected for me to be a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, and I would have shown God's glory in that destruction, and that would have been good. And I am eternally grateful that that's not true of me, but the fact that that is true of some is not evil on the part of God. That is, in fact, God showing how good he is. And so, yes, it's uncomfortable. No, it's not easy for us to think about that kind of a punishment. But that may say more about us than it does about God and how little we understand sin rather than how compassionate we are. Right. I I heard uh, more than once, I just heard it again, I was listening to a podcast, just one of my normal podcasts, um, I think it was Stand to Reason with Greg Couple, but uh, he was talking about a, um, actually, no, it was James White um, on the Dividing Line. and uh, Which is funny, so uh, he does the Dividing Line, and um, his friend Michael Brown does the Line of Fire, and sometimes they do a joint show, and they call it the Dividing Line of Fire. That's, that's not that's good. A little plug for both of them. <laughs> But uh, he was talking about a prisoner in a prison and a governor having the ability to pardon. And it's a very good picture of us because the prisoner obviously doesn't deserve pardoning. Right. And any prisoner who gets what his just what justice requires um, can't look at the judge and say, you owe me a pardon. A pardon is of grace, just like salvation is. Um, so I, I just don't understand this the motivation for the question and he goes on to say how could anyone think that that loving god would do that well he he is good he's a, he's a great god he's a holy god so it almost anthropomorphizes god makes him like a man where we don't understand that uh his love and his justice and his wrath and his mercy and his grace are all divine they're all you know to the exponential degree so yeah and this comment um makes me want to have a discussion with Ken Hemphill and pursue the topic of God's sovereignty, omniscience, omnipotence, open theism, because um, this seems to me like an objection that applies just as much to Arminianism as it does to Calvinism if you have a God who knows the end from the beginning, right? So if if God is all-powerful and he knows the end from the beginning, and men have the ability to choose him and can be persuaded to, then what's going on? Because it seems like you have a God who has the ability, even within the constraints of humans having this autonomous free will, are, are some of them unconvincible? I mean, like, how, how does this play out? Because 
God does know, according to the parameters that we've set up for this discussion, talking about God's sovereignty and his omniscience and all of those divine attributes, he does know the end from the beginning. He does know that though hell was created primarily for Satan and the fallen angels, that it will be populated by humans. And so this doesn't seem to be a one-sided, thorny issue. And No, I haven't thought about that, because what you're saying is it cuts both ways if you have a God who is truly God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, And I think that we have a good explanation for it, and I'd like to hear how an Armenian would deal with us saying, well, okay, let's turn that back on you and say, you have a God that you believe is eternal, sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent, so why do people go there? And men, are per- men, in and of themselves, are persuadable given God's grace. Now, we may be getting, we're, we're, just, we're, we're covering a lot of tulip in one. And I don't that's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it you can't help but overspill, <laughs> but since this was brought up as part of this discussion, right? I, I don't know how someone coming from the Armenian perspective would make good sense out of that objection if it was turned back around on them. And so that struck me as, have you have you thought about how this impacts you as well? Um, and one last thing, I don't want to turn this into another jars, but I think James Wine made a good point that the effort that God exercises in bringing someone to life it's not the same effort that he exercises in condemning them to hell because we naturally deserve hell. That's our natural path. And I've used this, you can think of lemmings like running off a cliff, even though that's been disproven. Right? They don't do that. They don't actually <laughs> do that unless you have Disney directors forcing them. Yeah. Separate topic. But that common idea of lemmings, it's not that God is pushing some of them to hell. No, he's grabbing some of them and, and rescuing those. Uh, as we all, you know, run in rebellion away from him. Yeah. Um, so it, it just seems a very odd objection. But I think we've... Well, and, and one quick other analogy, which maybe it's a bad one, I don't know. In, in, in this area, analogies seem to break down real fast. Right. But if you have a heavy weight that's on the ground, nobody needs to exert... Gravity's taking care of keeping it where it is. Lifting it is what requires the effort. So fallen man is the weight on the ground, left to his own devices, that's where he stays. God comes along and exerts effort for his elect. So it's not equal ultimacy. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so the next objection objection also from uh, Ken says, how could God call on man to love with a character and quality that he himself did not express? So this is where we're talking a little bit Many weeks ago, about this is the this is my beard is longer. <laughs> if you're watching, you'll tell. I, yeah. I grew a beard in you know one session. Yeah, um, this is the one I didn't get. At, maybe I did get a little angry at Ken when I was listening to it because it just seems so almost a slap dot in the face from no matter which perspective. Because to question God's love and his, his character, that he would require something um, of us that he's not willing himself to do on a moral basis. Obviously, he can preach really things he can require, because we're creatures. Um, so how could God call on man to love of the character? Well, again, it's kind of related to what we just said. He is expressing super erotative love, love that goes above and beyond all measure of what 
we're supposed to do. We could live perfect lives and basically get no merit out of that because that's our duty. That's our duty to a sovereign creator who created us. God's duty, he doesn't have a duty to us. Um, he could exercise his judgment and we could all be in, in hell just like that. Um, but it's his love that allows us to be here and enjoy the the grace of earth in this life. And it's his love and grace that allows us uh, for some that he's going to exert his effort to draw to himself um, that we'll enjoy for eternity. So, um, so I agree with everything you just said, but I want to challenge a presupposition in this question. Well, let me let me say one other thing and then challenge it. So, okay. and then the the and maybe this is I don't know this probably is, yeah. But our relationship to one another, we're all. We're all like fallen folks. I'm on an equal standing with you. So God can tell me to love you, to love my enemies, to pray for my enemies, to treat my enemies well. That relationship that I have with another human is completely different than God has with humans. He's the sovereign word. He's the creator. We're the creatures. So actually, that wasn't the objection I had. So here we go. <laughs> um, who says that this is a quality that God himself does not express? God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. In Romans 9, God, Paul says that God has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Right? God does show love to the lost, the non-elect, the unregenerate. Those, those who will end up in hell actually do for a time experience the love of God, which is what increases their condemnation because they know God, according to Romans 1, and do not see fit to honor him as God. Give thanks to him. And in spite of that, God allows them to continue breathing. God allows them to continue thriving in life. God allows them to have good things. What is that if not love? I mean, the, the, cha the, the charge here seems to be, if you end up in hell, then God has never, ever shown you any love. And the implicit charge underneath, or the, at least the assertion, would be something akin to God has to love everybody in exactly the same way, which we've already dealt with. But, but I would say, not only does he not have to love us all in the same way, but he does, in fact, love and show love and kindness and mercy, even to those who don't experience that for eternity. Yes, yes that cuts off at a point for the loss. But... How dare you say that what he shows the lost here in life is not love and mercy? I mean, it it boggles the mind. They seem to be setting up a straw man caricature of God just so they can shoot it down. And it, so it reminds me of the hymn that I always found odd. The wording is, and fills the earth with food. Um, it's just one snippet of it. Right. But that's an actual song. in uh, David probably, but maybe not David. I Fair, good guess. Yes, yeah, good guess. Uh, talks about you know how God's mercy and provision for food for the animals and you know for the 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 humans and just his you know his mercy and grace to us in this life, which goes along with what you're saying. Yeah. All right. So next objection. Uh, how can we? And we kind of. Uh, covered this some before, but the objection was, how can we offer salvation if Christ hasn't died for all? And we 
had the um, example that someone brought up about if you have a TV and you offer it to somebody. Um, so I don't know if we want to revisit this because uh, we kind of dealt with it pretty thoroughly in our previous podcast, but one uh, points we made were um, we're not in fact offering salvation. We're pointing to the offer of we're salvation. preaching salvation. We're preaching yeah. salvation would be another way. Um, well, and how about this? <clears throat> the offer of salvation is this. For everyone who repents and believes, Christ is a perfect redeemer. Is there anything objectionable in that? What, why must we go out and look somebody in the eye who who is their entire life lived in rebellion to God, is currently in rebellion to God, and say, God loves you and wants to save you? Why, why do we Let's, have to say that that's the only legitimate gospel presentation? That's what I don't understand. Because that's what Paul and Peter did when they preached. Can no. you show me that? <laughs> no, I, I, didn't. I remember Peter saying something um, like, well, let me look it up. Let's see here. Um, what is it? It's, I thought it was Acts 2, right? Before he's preaching. Talks about uh, Jesus. No, I'm sorry. Here it is. Acts 4.12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's verse 11. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah. We're saved by Christ. If, if you repent and place your faith in Christ as your Savior, no one who does that is lost. He will be a perfect Savior for those who repent and believe. And those comments go for both sides of of this discussion because there's a lot of people who I think are doing evangelism slightly different than what you see done in the Bible and it, it drives me well drives me nuts is probably too strong but it, I, I'm like why would we say the things we do to our kids and stuff right that's not what the Bible says okay um whosoever will yeah that's Calvinist yeah, because the only ones who will, and um, this this is a pet peeve of mine because it's a misconstrual in modern English of what was a fine translation in 17th century English. You know, whosoever will or whatever. Basically, John 3:16 is talking about the mechanism of faith. It's not talking about the scope of ability. You know, people people harp on this whosoever as if God is saying anything about ability. But all John 3.16 says is God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son so that all the ones who believe on him should not perish but will have eternal life. You believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. It doesn't say anything either way about ability. So yes, whosoever wants to be saved can be saved. You have any problem with that? No, I don't. Um, and I know the objection, the counter objection was, well, you're kind of saying that wink, wink, because you, it, based on what you believe, um, there's only some that can. And we haven't talked about it yet, but we would say that no one can uh, because of not God, but Adam, our father. Um, and so those who do come because we are drawn by the father uh, to the son. So, I agree. We can say whoever, whosoever will. Um, 
someone could come back and say, well, what about Romans 10, where it says, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I completely agree with that, too. Let me repeat it. (laughs) Everyone who repents and places their faith in Christ as Savior will find him to be a perfect Savior. I mean, God's not surprised by, the omniscient God is not surprised by those who uh, choose to come. And the omnipotent God is not sitting there rubbing his hands and just hoping some can be persuaded. I mean, if, if, but even sentence. if you, even if you had an Arminian view on the other points, um, God knows who will. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Uh, some of these, again, we did touch on. So this next one we touched on. Uh, so Tim Barnett in, in his sermon says that uh, John Owen's argument about double jeopardy assumes that what we're talking about is commercial debt because you would never pay a mortgage twice. Once it's paid, it's paid. But we're not really dealing with commercial debt. We're dealing with a legal or moral debt. Um, and he says no one's sins are paid at, for at the cross. Rather, they're paid for... He, I think he misspeaks because I wrote this down verbatim. So, but so, so it's a little bit. So let me just. He says they're paid for at the cross. Is what he's trying to say, but they're not applied until someone meets those conditions, which so goes to made. Yeah. So the the well, he would say that it goes to the extent versus the application. Mm-hmm. So the extent of the atonement is that everyone is paid for but the provision or application is not made until the requirements are met so god's got a warehouse full of tvs and if you actually go to the warehouse you'll pick one yeah and he made a tv for everybody right and then he has leftover tvs okay so I, I think this fails on a number of reasons. You know, you've got down there uh, legal debt, moral debt versus commercial debt. You don't get thrown in jail twice for the same crime. You know, I mean, we, we actually have language that says he's paid his debt to society. That is speaking of the legal and moral debt that's incurred by a crime. And I understand that that's not exactly scriptural in that we can't find that specifically in scripture, but I think it's a scriptural principle where you go to the justice passages in the Old Testament and it's very clear, somebody broke the law by doing X, the penalty is Y, and, and then it's done. Right, and then you don't expect to pay it twice. Right, you know, you, you steal a, a sheep and you have to pay back four sheep one time. Like you don't have to pay back four sheep and then pay back four sheep and and if I pay back four sheep for you then it's paid. It's I mean so I, I think this is creating a false dichotomy between two things that are actually much more alike than they are dissimilar. Yeah, and I looked I probably didn't look exhaustively, but I I did do some searches for a difference between a commercial debt and a moral debt versus legal debt. I didn't find anything on there that seemed to be relevant. So I, I can't even, in my mind, picture, maybe this is a shortcoming on, on me, a legal debt versus a moral debt versus a commercial debt. They're all debts. They're all something that has to be owed, that, that's owed, that needs to be paid. Um, and whoever is receiving that payment ex- expects payment. 
we talked um, a couple episodes ago about uh, Chuck Colson and someone actually serving his last year or so of a prison sentence uh, so that he can get out and get some much needed health. And so there we, we would expect once he returned his health, now you gotta go back and serve your sentence. No, that guy stood in your place. He was a, a penal substitution for you. Yeah. Um, well, and I, getting back to the Bible, because I think that's where we all would like the argument to stay. During the three hours of darkness, God's wrath was, in fact, poured out on Christ. If that wrath was poured out to make provision for sin, then explain to me how it can be just for that same wrath to be poured out again on the sinner. I mean, it's God's beloved son. You're telling me that he poured out wrath that was unnecessary on his son? That... I realize I'm making a logical argument. I think it's also in line with Scripture, at least. Um, Christ bore in himself the penalty for our sin. He bore the wrath of God for us. If he did that, then God's wrath is satisfied for me. So if he did that for everyone, then no one can go to hell. So I don't know how that type of a view doesn't logically lead towards universalism. Now, I'm not saying Armenians are universalists, but what I am saying is I believe there's an inconsistency here because atonement means atonement. It doesn't mean potential. It means something that's done. Um, and if you go to Isaiah 53, it talks about... I couldn't remember if it was 56 when I was looking for it. What are you, what are you thinking? Well, it talks about the... The iniquity of us all was laid on him. By his stripes we are healed, and the we there is those of us who have peace with God. There's, there's, there's never in Scripture anything that talks about Christ bearing something for someone who ends up in hell. That just, that's not a category that makes any sense. Yeah, so that was the exact phrase I was thinking of. By, by his stripes we are healed. Uh, verse four of Isaiah fifty-three starts out: Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves have seen from stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It seems like what the writer here is saying is that there is a result of those actions. And the people that he had in mind are healed and they are, it's for their well-being, i.e. for their, we say that's for their uh, salvation. So it seems odd to say that people's sins are paid for in their tone, but they don't get these results from it. They, they're not actually healed. They're not actually, it wasn't actually for their good. Um, it, and then in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. I mean, especially in the context in which this was written, you don't go make the prescribed offering for your guilt before God and then go, but did it count? I mean, that, that, again, that's not a concept. That's not a category that we find in Scripture. So it, I just... Again, I think this kind of cuts both ways, and it's like, if, if you're going to say this, then 
that actually proves you got a very efficient view of what atonement actually is. All right, so the last one will take a little bit of setup. So Tim Barnett um, is responding to one of uh, an argument from a limited atonement person. The argument was that Christ died to make men saved, not savable. And he claims this is a false dilemma that he died both to make folks savable and to save folks. The elect are savable with the atonement, but not saved until faith and repentance. There's a difference between atonement accomplished and atonement applied. And his comparison is the, the brass serpent that was lifted up. Um, did it make healing possible or did it actually heal people? Yes, it did both. It was a provision for healing, uh, but folks actually had to look to the serpent in order for the healing to be applied. Um, There's a word that I heard uh, that I thought captured, I think, and I want to read Tim as charitably as I can. I think the difference for Tim and maybe me might be on the definition of atonement. Mm -hmm. um, I may be getting this wrong. Maybe you know the word. I think it's something like obligation. It's not something like that, but it just basically means making a sacrifice. I'll figure it out. Oblation. Oblation. There we go. Um, and so, in a sense, like that, that serpent was lifted up maybe as an oblation, or that uh, the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement is you know sent out as an oblation, and the the goat that actually dies is killed as as a, a sacrifice of oblation. That doesn't mean that the benefits of those things accrue to everyone. And what we're saying is that the benefits accrue to those who meet the, um, the parameters. So I think, that's, I think that's what Tim is saying. Like that oblation was made for everyone in a broad sense, but then that benefit only uh, accrues to those to whom looked, you know, they looked up mm -hmm. or they believed. I think the difference is the atonement, like we, we kind of stretched atonement apart because that's what the uh, unlimited atonement folks do and they break it down into an intent, extent, and application. I don't think that that, if you look at atonement as the Bible uses it, you know, propitiation or expiation of our sins, you could equate atonement to justify, although justified is the act once, you know, salvation, mm -hmm. once someone comes to believe, but everyone who is atoned will be justified. Mm -hmm. So, I think I know, I think I understand Tim's viewpoint. I just think that he is confusing this act that is done on behalf of the whole world versus the actual, no, your sins are paid for. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense. How would you respond? I think it's, um, you know, a lot of things in the Old Testament, we have a type anti-type relationship to things in the New Testament. And certainly Jesus says there's a parallel between as the serpent was raised up, so was the Son of Man raised up. So yes, that there's a parallel going on here, and all who look to the Son raised up receive ultimate full healing, just like all who looked at the bronze serpent receive healing from the fiery serpents that were biting them. The writer, just to interrupt real quick, now I'm not saying that that parallel doesn't exist, but the writer also says Jesus said that to indicate by which manner he would die. Sure. So, um, 
there's a sense in which he's saying, I will, I'm going to die on the cross. And that may be the bigger parallel, but go ahead. Well, and I guess what, what I'm saying is, I, I think that there is a parallelism that's going on there, a, a shadow and fulfillment of type anti-type. Sure. Um, I think we're assuming things about the serpent that the text may or may not indicate to us, and then saying these things must also apply 100% in the same way to Christ on the cross. And I think we're, you know, as, as we've talked about, we've got um, allegories and we've got metaphors, and you can press those too far. And I think, you know, that, that this is one of those cases where we have clear didactic teaching in the New Testament that tells us what the intent and scope of the atonement is. So to go back to the bronze serpent and say, everyone who looked at this could have been healed, I would say, well, oh, okay, sure. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, you know, but that doesn't really tell us whether the bronze serpent was healing that was provisioned for everybody. And then only, I mean, it, it, I think you're starting to press that imagery into service in areas that it wasn't intended for, right? It, it, it was something that happened that foreshadowed what would happen to Christ, but not every foreshadowing has an exact point-for-point point, uh, lining up with something in the New Testament. So I, I Just like when you take a parable, which is kind of allegorical, and press it too far and say, oh, this, this part of the parable must mean this, and it's not. No, the, the parable is meant to teach a, a theme or an idea, a big idea, and you take that away from it, but you don't. Press more out of it. There's a mosquito flying around. This is what we're looking at. <laughs> well, and by the way, if we want to press it really far and we want to go to total depravity for only a second, why in the world would anybody not have looked up? You're being bit to death by fiery serpents, and all you have to do is raise your eyes. Why would anybody not do that? Right. Maybe they weren't able. They were stubborn at heart, probably. Almost like they have a condition. Right. Yeah. Um, so, big wrap up on limited atonement. Hopefully, this has been helpful. I, I know that we strongly defend our position, and like we said at the beginning, it's not that we're angry, we're not mad. Um, and I know there, I have friends, I have friends who are Armenians. <laughs> so, it's not that, uh, you don't, <laughs> it's not that we are, uh, cross at you. And I think, I think something that's lost in our current day, we don't need to go back to the day of Calvin where we're killing people. You would agree with that, right? Yes, that was not an agreement. Not that we should kill people. Yeah, um, we should not be killing people for theological differences. Right. I, I think when we talk about this and any other thing that comes up on this episode, we should be careful to separate the person from the idea. And we should be able to take, you know, the idea out to, you know, the whipping block and just beat an idea up a lot and show how the idea is wrong and still love the person. Um, and so hopefully we've done that. We've been faithful that, you know, we, you've seen us, um, get animated maybe sometimes and it's not a, an animus towards, uh, the people. It's just the, the ideas and, and what we're discussing. Um, we're convinced that this is what scripture teaches yeah. and I hope that if you're a believer you think scriptural convictions are important um, maybe we disagree maybe we're wrong maybe you're wrong whatever but um, yeah I, I think 
I think we need people who are willing to die on hills of doctrine. And if you're just listening, I did the air quotes. Um, not to be disagreeable, not to be harsh, but um, these are important things. We, we ought to go to the woodshed over doctrine. Certainly not, not too much right. and not all the time and certainly not be divisive in our personalities. Um, we're doing this in a forum that's dedicated to it. This isn't how we act in church. This isn't how we act among our body. We're not always trying to stir up strife and contention or anything like that. But in this forum, those are kind of the ground rules. We're, we're, we're entering a boxing ring, so to speak, of, of ideas. theological ideas. Yeah. Um, and then when we leave the ring, we leave the ring. Right. And if you're a brother in Christ, we love you. Right. Or a sister in Christ. But not like we love our wives. <laughs> um, I will leave, well, I will say one last wrap up and then I'll give you the final word. Whether you are a Calvinist or an Arminian, God acting from eternity has to, in his intent, extent and application, limit the atonement if he's actually paying for sins. If you take atonement to mean the removal of our guilt, sin, and the appeasement of God's wrath, and God acts from from eternity as God and not in time as man, then the atonement has to be limited to those who meet those qualifications, regardless of how they come to meeting those qualifications. So you could disagree with every other point. That's why I wanted to start out with this one under protest from Michael, um, the other Michael. But I, I think this can be common ground where we go, yeah, the, the atonement is limited because God's an, a, an eternal being who's omniscient, who's omnibenevolent, omnipresent, all the omnis. Who came to believe in him wasn't a surprise. Those sins were paid for at the cross once and for all that Jesus sat down to the right hand of the Father to make intercession for the elect. Anyone add? God say God came to save his people. And not every aspect of contemplating that is easy. Um, the necessary implications of hell as a conscious, eternal torment separated from the blessing of God's presence is very, very sobering. And I think that that is something around which Calvinists and Arminians should unite to go and preach the gospel. Um, we may not do it quite the same way, and we may get in this particular ring and duke it out. But when we go out to the lost world, we have a gospel that actually saves. Yeah. And we have a hope to offer those who are perishing. So um, I, I, I am passionate about this, but I am far more passionate that God intends to save his people and he intends to use us to go proclaim his gospel to do it. So next recording session, next episode, Total Depravity. Total Depravity. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to our closeout on the Doctrine of Limited Atonement. Catch us next time as we begin our four-episode treatment of the Doctrine of Total Depravity. You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus. 
the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology.